is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Rob Archer. In for Charles Feldman. The uh, fentanyl crisis across the country and right here in Southern California is reaching a breaking point. Officials in L.A. County will announce next hour a working group to address fentanyl overdoses. We go in-depth as parents worry if their kids will be the next fall victim to this addictive and deadly substance. KNX also hosting a town hall later today on the fentanyl crisis. We'll explain more about that in a bit. The U.S. moving on to the World Cup, defeating Iran 1-0 in a match that just ended, but this match was about more than just a game. China is trying to squash protests as anger around the country builds over COVID restrictions. The unrest is also delaying production of the iPhone. Well, much of the talk on staying healthy this winter has revolved, of course, around trying to avoid COVID, COVID-19. But one doctor says it's not COVID you or your body should be most worried about. We'll go in-depth on that. And we'll go in-depth later in the show with, with Santa Claus. Yes, yeah, Santa Claus himself will join us. He's a lot more popular this year as things slowly return to a pre-pandemic normal. I'm going to start with the fentanyl crisis and the action L.A. County officials are taking. Nicholas Matthews is founder, CEO of Stillwater Behavioral Health in Santa Monica, Puerto Ranch, Montecito. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, so, first of all, this fentanyl crisis, is this just another another in a long line of addiction crises we're dealing with, or is there something different and something worse and something more dangerous about fentanyl? Sure. Um, you know, I think yes and no, right? Yes, it is another in a long line. There seems to always be some newer and more powerful drug, um, you know, uh, but but fentanyl in particular is so dangerous because it is extremely lethal. You know, um, it, it's such a, a, a hyper powerful opioid that people are dropping like flies, even seasoned you know, users and abusers of opiates and opioids are kind of meeting their match with with this drug. That's what makes it so dangerous. What can what can a parent do if they suspect that their child is what either using or around people that might put them in an awkward position where they may be feeling they 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 want they they want to use? Sure. You know, I'm I'm really glad you asked that question because I really wholeheartedly believe that the solution to this problem lies within the family dynamic. Um, and, and I think creating uh, an environment and a dialogue that is free of judgment and punishment um, is, is a really great first step. You know, I think that we learn as a society that prohibition doesn't, isn't very effective, right? We, we make these drugs illegal and people smuggle them in, they do them anyway. And I think that on a smaller scale, prohibition is also ineffective within families. You know, teenagers are historically oppositionally defiant. And if you tell them not to do something, they want to know why. They're inquisitive. They want to understand. So starting by creating an environment where your kid feels comfortable and safe to talk to you and they know that they can always pick up the phone when they're in trouble, I think is a really good first place to start. Um, And, you know, I... Unfortunately, I think most people, they don't start with fentanyl. It generally is progressive. And I think that if you are paying close attention to who they're hanging out with, who they're around, you can you can intervene pretty effectively. 
Um, is there some hysteria about fentanyl as well? And and the reason I ask that question is because uh, I, I am concerned that, uh, yes, fentanyl is very, very, very dangerous, and we have to do something about it. But at the same time, some historical claims have been made in the past, and that might serve to, as a kind of a – might snap back against some people to hear the hysterical claims and then conclude, well, it's not really that dangerous at all. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the fentanyl crisis is such an interesting thing from my perspective, because as I said, it's it's sort of the latest in a long line, you know, of of new powerful drugs that are killing people. Um, and it only when it starts to happen on such a broad scale and we have more overdose deaths in a recorded history, um, you know, it's starting to get attention. I think that people are making I don't necessarily want to say a mistake, but I think a misguided effort by vilifying fentanyl itself and not necessarily asking the right questions. You know, fentanyl is the solution, but what we're dealing with is a society that is desperate to medicate. So if fentanyl is the medicine, we need to figure out why they want to medicate. I think that should be the question we ask, not necessarily how do we stop fentanyl from coming in? Yes, obviously we need to do that. But our first priority, I believe, is to clean house and figure out why are we doing this in the first place? How can we intervene earlier to stop this? What's the government role? Does more need to be done by government at the federal, the state or the local level? Absolutely. I really think that... um, you know, we, we have a responsibility as a society, but, but from a government standpoint, they need to put emphasis on reducing harm. You know, we have a system now where if you are going down that road, chances are you're arrested, you are, you know, you're punished. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but I am saying that treatment options need to be available because we recognize that punishment is not a long-term catalyst for change. And the government, I think, has a responsibility to view this as a public health crisis and provide resources, education, and do everything in their power to reduce harm. Uh, Very quickly, uh, because we're running short of time, I wanted to ask you about, uh, is there a good use for fentanyl? And uh, my dad uh, recently passed. He was under pain management towards the end there. And I uh, I was told that part of the uh, regimen he was under was uh, fentanyl was included in uh, what was happening to keep him pain free. So what are the good uses of fentanyl and or is it so bad that we should just do away with it entirely? Well, look, I think, you know, it, it, it does what it's supposed to do remarkably well. And the good uses are when people are in chronic pain. And I'm sorry to hear about your father, but when there are cases such as that, where somebody is in such an insurmountable amount of pain, you know, my experience shows the fentanyl is generally reserved for sort of end of life, quality of life care. It's so powerful that there's really no, no use for it. If you're going to heal and get back on your feet, there are much less powerful uh, much less addictive ways to manage pain. But, you know, it, it does do the trick when somebody is really in in so much pain that they, you know, can can hardly stay awake kind of a thing. But it is it is a very extreme solution. Okay. Nicholas, thank you again. That's Nicholas Matthews, uh, founder, CEO of the Stillwater Behavioral Health uh, Group.
Right now, though, the U.S. is advancing to the next round of the World Cup thanks to a one to nothing win over Iran in a match that just ended. The match was built up mostly because of the politics surrounding it. Iran very upset over a social media post from the U.S. Soccer Federation. Of course, there have been recent protests in Iran that the Iranian government has said were stirred up by the U.S. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a former State Department Middle East analyst and CNN Global affairs analyst thank you so much for uh, joining us so it uh, by all by all uh, appearances this is bigger than just a soccer match uh, so will the u.s victory reverberate in the political arena as well in iran or will this will this upset iran more will this cause more problems you know i have to say right now having watched this and rooting for the u.s team i'm reminded uh, of george orwell's quote uh writing about a russian a visiting soccer team to Great Britain in 1945, uh, Orwell said that um, sports is war minus the shooting. Um, and clearly, in, in the hyper-nationalist environment of, of international soccer, with team loyalties, government, government-sponsored programs, it takes on an added significance. But I have to say, right now, uh, given what's happening in the streets of Tehran, uh, I think just a moment of empathy for an Iranian uh, soccer team that clearly, uh, you know, refused to buy the regime's wholesale propaganda, whether there were divisions within the team, why they didn't sing the Iranian national anthem and then seemed to mouth it quietly. Um, I think this team is under tremendous pressure. The U.S. is going on. Uh, whether or not we beat the Netherlands, uh, these guys will come home as heroes. The Iranian team is going back to a repressive regime, to a volatile situation where their families have have clearly been threatened and pressured. Uh, Their loss and their refusal to, you know, buy on to the wholesale propaganda of the regime, I think, is going to cost these young men plenty. So I think by and large, the the Iranian equation, this this victory um, may add a little insult to injury, but the broader forces that are now entrained uh, a repressive regime trying to stem the, the tide of uh, demonstrations that are now in their 11th week, an Iranian regime that is continuing to gin up its um, nuclear program um, and uh, no prospects uh, of, a, of an agreement uh, to control it. All of this is going to rapidly move from the field of sports to real Uh, I'm afraid, real international conflict. Well, as you mentioned, the players taking a stand during the national anthem in that first game, but I can't help but harken back to that that pre-game interview session yesterday involving the Team USA uh, head coach and the team's captain when they were bombarded by questions from uh, members of the Iran media. And I guess I'm drawing a bit of a parallel here between what we saw from the players in defiance uh, and what we saw from the media, and I don't know if you saw it or not or heard about it, but they really went after both the coach and the team captain from two, Team USA with political questions. Uh, your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, again, sports, sport, Oral was probably right. Uh, sports is uh, politics and war uh, by other means. And, and, and I think the, those questions were obviously um, uh, questions uh, that were, designed to further Iran's national objectives and and basically to uh, embarrass embarrass the American side. All of this, however, I think is going to rapidly fade 
um, within, within a week or so, it'll be soccer, soccer, soccer. And then, as I suggested to you, the real problem between Iran and the United States is the impending conflict over a nuclear issue. And uh, I think in the end, that's what we're going to end up focusing on. With their loss to a Team USA, they needed a win or a, a draw, uh, did uh, the Iranian team. With their loss, they're now out of the tournament. Do you see any consequences for the Iranian players when they head back to their home country? Oh, uh, David, can you hear us? We, we appear to have lost you. Yeah, can you hear us? I, I'm sorry. I would not underestimate the repressive powers of this regime or their willingness to use uh, these young men, uh, make an example of them. I mean, I, I, I think impossible to say. I, I hope and I pray uh, that they that that these young men don't suffer the consequences um, uh, for their loss or for obviously their their conflicted views about how to behave in the international forum. And, um, hundreds of thousands of um, young men and women, their their compatriots, uh, are repressed by a, a very and authoritative regime. Okay. Aaron David Miller, thank you for your time. Aaron David Miller, he's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a former State Department Middle East analyst and currently a CNN Global Affairs analyst. Coming up out of the flu, RSV and COVID, which one are you most worried about? Well, if it's COVID, one doctor could have you rethinking that position. And more people want to see Santa Claus again this holiday season. Right now, though, China is trying to stop massive protests in the streets that have broken out over anti-COVID restrictions. Some controls have been eased, but nothing major. The unrest over the COVID restrictions has even even impacted iPhone production and has led to some big delays. With us now is Andrew Murtha. He's director of the SAIS China Global Research Center. That's at John Ho- Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Uh, first of all, how bad is the situation? By all accounts, from what we're seeing, video coming out of China these days, it's getting bad there. So it's getting, it's worse than it's been in quite some time. So uh, relatively speaking, but it's been a low baseline, which is to say, we don't see a whole lot of uh, people uh, congregating uh, uh, in absolute terms. But just to have a few dozen or a couple hundred here or there uh, under Xi Jinping's China is kind of a big deal. Just not that long ago, Xi Jinping, you know, had basically clamped down on his control of the government in uh, China and uh, obviously planning to stick around for a long time. And then right after that, we see these protests coming out over COVID. And I heard that part of the protests were sparked by uh, the World Cup in that uh, people in China were watching coverage of the World Cup and they were seeing a big crowd of people without masks on. And so they began to think, oh, why are we, we being forced to wear masks? Why are we being forced to shut everything down? Is that part of the, the drive behind this protest or is there more going on? So I think the protests really are a convergence of a number of different things. So the incident that uh, that sparked them was a fire in the capital uh, city of the uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Region, uh, Urumqi, where um, 10 or more people, the official count is 10 people were killed or died in a fire um, and the um, in, in a building that had been quarantined and uh, supposedly the fire trucks couldn't get close enough because of the COVID restrictions. And so that sparked the protest. But the protests have been 
um, simmering for a while. Um, uh, there, there are a number of reasons, but I think uh, one of the biggest ones is the fact that uh, Chinese uh, citizens don't like being cooped up. Um, and uh, going into the third year now, we've gone past our COVID fatigue. And if we think we've had it bad, um, they've had it much worse. Yeah, we um, do. And, and I'm just going to say yeah. that it kind of adds insult to injury <laughs> to seeing the rest of the world really um, being able to move into a post-COVID um, uh, lifestyle where China seems to be you know, very much um, within its own uh, COVID bubble of its own making. Well, further to that, protests can happen here over COVID or over pick pick your issue. But realistically, can the protesters in China have any impact there with the Chinese government or in the end, being that it's a communist government, it'll it'll, it'll amount to nothing? So I don't think that uh, certainly nothing at this point makes me think that there'll be a... um a direct effect uh, of these protests and uh, the Chinese authorities are already um, trying to uh, uh, crack down on students. Uh, They're sending students home from uh, universities like Beijing University and and Tsinghua. um, And they are also um, uh, starting to um, tease out and identify people who were involved in the protests. Um, That said, um, the fact that the protests also are a clear indication that there is dissatisfaction with Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping's uh, signature issue, that is zero COVID, it might lead to some sort of reshuffling uh, within the, um, the, the the top echelons uh, of the state. I don't think it's anything that would um, uh, uh, come close to um, being a threat to Xi Jinping himself, uh, but it might... Uh, provide some opportunity for uh, some other voices to possibly be heard or um, a scaling back of the kind of draconian policies that we've seen seen um, that is you know if 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 um, uh, if it that would be a successful um, uh, uh, articulation of uh, kind of an indirect effect of the protest on uh, on governance in China all right but uh, uh, well, I wanted to ask you very quickly, uh, is uh, Xi Jinping, obviously, he's, you know, as you say, he's, he's not going to step down. Uh, but you seem to indicate that uh, what he might do in response to this is to throw some other people in the government under the bus. Blame them. Oh, here's here's your bad guys. I was good. And you guys can calm down and go home now. We're, we're a bit tight on time here. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really well put. Um, and so we're likely to see that happen to kind of provincial level or municipal officials, local officials. Uh, but that said, um, that's going to be a problem for Xi in, fa- in that these officials were pretty much following his policy line. So we'll have to see what happens. OK, Andrew, Andrew, thank you again. That's Andrew Murth, the director of the Assize China Global Research Center at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Okay, next in depth, uh, Rob Archer along with Chris Edens today. And uh, we are speaking with uh, Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. Uh, now being said that COVID may not be the virus to be worried about this season. So if that is the case, and thank you for joining us, uh, what virus is? Well, influenza. So, I mean, just to take a step back from that, I'm working in the hospital as we speak, um, and uh, I'm on service, clinical service, and um, we have such high rates of immunity at this point to COVID 
that no, COVID is not causing a lot of severe disease in the hospital. And it really is influenza and for young children and older people, RSV. So our other viruses came roaring back, not not from what I think you just said, which is that you are wearing masks and keeping away from each other. It's not really that. I think it's something called viral interference, which is when one virus quells, unfortunately, other viruses come in to fill its place. The, the, the degree of COVID that we had over the last two years was keeping other viruses at play. And there's a scientific concept called viral interference about that. Okay, interesting. Tell me, is this year's strain of the flu stronger than what we've seen in the past or, or one that's harder for the flu shots that we get to, to protect us against? So there are two reasons, I think. One is that um, I do think the flu shot works because they looked at the strains in Australia because they had a bad flu season in our summer, their winter. And the strains look like they match what's in the flu shot. So please get your flu shot. But it's actually two things. Lower rates of flu vaccination because people are sort of tired of all this. And I hope that people will get their flu shot. And the second is I think that we kind of kept away from each other the last two years. We didn't see a lot of viruses, and our immune systems are just a bit down at the moment. This is called immunity debt. And so, unfortunately, I think uh, there are some more severe illnesses when, when we haven't seen a lot of pathogens. So uh, will it get so bad that it would be a good idea to keep those masks uh, handy? Well, it's a very interesting question about the masks because I do think that keeping away from each other and ventilation were good. There's been a lot of masking data recently. There was just a big paper yesterday that randomized looking at masks and their effectiveness. And I don't think masks work as well as I think infection control practitioners were hoping for. I think one idea is that probably wearing a mask is a visible reminder that people were doing more distancing and they were thinking about a pandemic. But the way that people wear masks and the different types of masks they wear, it hasn't been as effective of intervention this last two and a half years that we ever thought it would be. And there's been lots of studies that show that now. Doctor, I think a lot of people are concerned that if they get COVID, there's the inflammation issues, the heart, the lungs, the sparking of other illnesses that may be laying dormant that kick in because of COVID. Uh, And then there's also on top of that long COVID. Are the threats as bad when it comes to the flu and RSV? Well, it's so it's a very important thing that you just asked because people were acting like COVID in a way, attacked um, organ systems differently. We have had six other coronaviruses that have been around for a long time, including two bad ones called SARS and MERS. We know how coronaviruses work, and we know how influenza and RSV works. If you get a severe case of any viral infection, you can get a lingering syndrome after that. There is long flu. There's long RSV if you get a very severe case. The biggest most important thing to do is avoid severe illness. And we have both COVID vaccines and influenza vaccines. We don't have an RSV vaccine yet. And so it it wasn't that it was different that you couldn't get lingering symptoms. People with severe flu also have lingering symptoms. So we have vaccines to cure, you know, to prevent severe disease, not every infection. We now know that, right? Like everyone's seen that with COVID. It will not prevent every infection, but we're seeing the rates of severe disease go so low that long COVID symptoms are also going down. All right. Dr. Gandhi, thank you again. That's Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. And uh, it's definitely beginning to look a lot like Christmas. You know how we can tell? <laughs> there are more Santas hanging yes. around. HireSanta.com.
says it's logged a 30%, yeah, 30% increase in demand over what it saw last year. People are feeling more comfortable letting their kids tell Santa in person what they want for Christmas and inviting Santa to their holiday parties. With us now is Ho 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 Santa Claus. He was just at the Hollywood Christmas Parade on Sunday. Uh, sometimes he goes by Timothy Conahan, a national Santa for Kringle Group. Santa, thanks for joining us. Are you ready for a busy season? We are ready for a busy season. Thousands of Santas actually started arriving uh, at various malls and centers just a couple of weeks ago. The majority of them came last week and, of course, uh, Black Friday. So uh, the Santas are in the malls. And, of course, there are also thousands of professional Santas who do private visits to homes and companies. And, of course, the only important question I have on my mind right now, Santa Claus knows who's naughty and who's nice. So between Chris Edens and myself, which one of us is naughty and which one of us is nice? And the answer well, better be Rob, correct. You know, the, the, the important thing is to remember that you have good days and you have bad days. <laughs> yes. So the object is to have more good days than bad days. Okay? And I'll leave it at that. That was very diplomatic of you. <laughs> Santa, how tough has it been dealing with COVID-19 in the last couple of years, which have been so difficult on all of us? Well, I think the entire country had to adjust. We had so many things we had to do, you know, from, you know, having to keep the children at home to uh, social distancing, to masking and everything else like that. Uh, with the Santas, of course, social distancing was very important. And for many Santas, this was not a possibility. So uh, there was no work. In other words, some shopping centers, some locations, and many families who had private home visits, corporations who had company parties, they all had to pull the plug. So it uh, it did stop a lot of uh, the men in red suit from being able to work. I want to get a little bit meta here for a minute because the uh, you know you, of course you've you've got the little kids and and uh, Santa is magical uh, for them but there's a there's a Santa Claus magic for uh, older kids and adults as well. Uh, what is that Santa magic and how can it be used to kind of in this season uh, as we come out of COVID and a, a bruising political season? How can we can we use that magic to kind of to heal maybe some of the divides between human beings? Well, I think that, you know, the unique thing about Santa Claus and, and the work of St. Nicholas and, and the, the Christmas tide, it's it's been around for 17 centuries. People like to reach back into the past. They like to reminisce and look at things that uh, they did when they were kids or when they did with their grandparents and stuff. So many families are so happy to be able to step back now and go back to that and to bring a bit of that magic there. Um, from the Santa side of the uh, equation. Santas also have to be uh, very tactful in how they talk with the children and uh, use some of their magic in trying to, you know, figure out their names, their ages, and uh, reminding them about being good and bad and things like that. So there's a lot of work uh, to do to keep the magic alive. Now, Santa, I know you go by another name, Timothy, uh, when you're not busy as, as Santa Claus. And I'm asking, Timothy, how long have you been doing this? <laughs> well, surprisingly, I started um, with the first beard of shaving cream in 1969. And it was in the military in Vietnam. Okay. I came home to Southern California and went to work for one of the Bullock's department stores. 
Christmas came and someone came to me and said, can you fill in for a few days? It turned out to be three years I was Santa for one of the Bullock stores. So that started my career. That was 54 years ago. Um, I have been a professional real bearded Santa for over 20 years. Wow. I started a Santa school. I've trained and graduated 4,800 Santas and Mrs. Claus from my school. So it's, it's a, Unique to think that you would finish your regular life in, in one profession and then all of a sudden move into this new profession and a whole new world. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for all you've done for the children around the well, world. Well, I thank you. And, uh, you know, the Santas are trying to be protected this year. We've uh, uh, a lot of us are using uh, Abbott Labs Benax now and trying to just keep ourselves healthy uh, so that the families can enjoy a visit with Santa. Well, wonderful. Uh, enjoy the season. All the best to you, Santa Claus. Thank you. Again, Santa Claus, uh, sometimes known as Timothy Conahan. Yeah, National I wouldn't say Santa which for... one of us is naughty and which one of us is nice. I mean, we got a diplomatic <laughs> answer, but we didn't get an answer. And it, 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 Charles Feldman would press him on oh, that. Oh, you can yes. bet Charles Oh, yeah, would. he'd My be up goodness. against the wall. Yeah, we'd be... Uh... We'd be doing a special series on that. For Rob Archer, I'm Chris Seatons. That's KNX In-Depth. We're back tomorrow 